But hey, we're starting a brand new series today that we are really, really excited about here at Kettlebrook, okay? We are uh, going to be looking at three chapters, three key chapters from the book of Romans, okay? And uh, Romans is one of the most influential and significant books in all of the New Testament. The Romans and the content and the truths and the principles found within Romans have literally changed the course of history. Okay, uh, it was 500 years ago that as the book of Romans and the study of the book of Romans that kicked off the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther began to realize the truths found within uh, the book of Romans. Not long after that, uh, a young man by the name of John Wesley was convicted by the preaching of the book of Romans. Okay, and as a result of that, he went off and started what became known as the Methodist movement, which became known as Methodist denomination, which at one time in the United States history was the largest Christian denomination in the United States. And so uh, so the book of Romans has had this influence um, in our nation's history and in the history of the world. So I want you to turn your Bibles to page 784. We're going to start in Romans chapter six now. Historically, here within uh, the United States, we have had this love affair with the book of Romans, okay? Uh, one of the reasons why I think is because the book of Romans is, uh, you know, like a legal brief on the gospel, okay? We are Americans. We, have, we like things logical. We like things organized. And Paul sets forth this kind of argument, this kind of manifesto on what the gospel is all about, Okay? And, and, and what it's all about. In fact, I, I was joking with the staff that, uh, that I, I thought that we should call this, uh, you know, a buttload of crap about the gospel. <laughs> because if you know, if you know, uh, if, if you know um, Nacho Libre, <laughs> that's a line from Nacho Libre. But anyways, so it's all about the gospel, okay? And, uh, and all the good news about, about the gospel and the truths contained within the Gospels. We're going to be looking at chapters 6, 7, 8. So we like things logical. We like things consistent and, and all that. And Paul does that here. But there's another reason why we like, uh, we like Romans so much here in the United States. Okay? Uh, is because what is one of our founding values? Like what is one of our core values as a nation? Freedom, right. Freedom is one of our core values. Now, this might be surprising to you, but if you go to other places in the world, freedom is not a core value. Okay, if you go to countries in the former Soviet Union, uh, stability is one of their core values. They like things stable in life. If you travel to the Middle East, uh, what you'll find is that honor is a core value in the Middle East, okay? Uh, but we are Americans, and we like our freedom, right? We love our freedom. And freedom is a theme that is found all throughout the book of Romans. In fact, John Stott, one of the greatest theologians of our generation, who died just a few years ago, uh, wrote this paragraph at the onset to um, a preface to his, um, to his commentary on the book of Romans. He says this, Its message is not that man is born free, it is rather that human beings are born in sin and slavery, but that Jesus Christ came to set us free. For here is unfolded the good news of freedom. Freedom from the holy wrath of God upon all ungodliness. Freedom from alienation into reconciliation. Freedom from condemnation of God's law. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom one day from the decay 
of the groaning creation into the glorious liberty of God's children and freedom to give ourselves to the loving service of God and others. And so uh, appropriately, we haven't held this series unshackled as we kind of explore and look into the various aspects of this freedom that we experience when we place our faith in Christ. And our hope, our hope and our prayer for all of us, for all of us, as we go through this book together uh, from now until the day that we celebrate on Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is that we as individuals personally and as a family collectively will grasp and apprehend, apprehend the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ and that Romans will once again change human history, maybe change our history, our personal history uh, in it. So let's get kind of get right into it. Romans is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in the, the city of Rome, that great city of Rome, which is why it's called Romans, if you were wondering. And uh, he had never met these people. He had never met them. So he's not writing in response to any problems or any uh, issues that they were facing in the church like he does in Corinthians. He's just writing them a flat-out manifesto of what the gospel uh, is. And so, uh, so he painstakingly uh, begins to spell that out. And um, so we're not going to look through all the chapters of it. We're just going to be looking at chapters 6, 7, and 8, which is kind of like the heart, the meat of uh, the book of Romans. And Paul begins by saying this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Okay, so that looks back on the previous uh, chapter that we're that we're looking at. I have a friend. He got a brand new job this week. Okay. He's got a really nice job now. He's no longer an hourly employee. He is now a salary employee. Uh, He no longer has to go into the office every day. He gets to work from home. All right. They sent him a sweet computer and two big monitors that he gets to hook up at his home. Uh, And, uh, and he no longer has to check in with human resources anymore to get time off or vacation or holidays or let him know that he's sick or anything like that. He gets, check this out, unlimited paid time off. I'm like, Luke, how do you get this? Like unlimited PTO? Like, how do you get that? That's like unheard of. And, you know, if you're like me, you might be, you might be wondering, you know, one question. It's like, What's to stop somebody from kind of abusing the system? Like, what's to stop you from sleeping in a little late in the morning? What's to stop you from kicking off early on a Friday afternoon? Maybe shopping online at Amazon during the day? Maybe having a sick day here and there? What's to stop you from abusing the system? And, and Paul, at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, is asking the same question, or answering the same question. He just got done telling everybody that, number one, in Romans chapter 1 through 5, nothing that we do, none of our righteous acts, none of the way we behave or the good things that we do, none of, us can make, none of that can make us right with God. None of that can make us right with it. We don't get right with God by the things that we do. But the other thing that he began to tell them is the way they do get right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. God's goodness and grace to us and our forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And so he, he ends chapter 5 by saying this. He says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Basically, the more you sin, the more grace there is. God is always going to have more grace than your sin. And 
Paul anticipates the question that people are logically going to be asking. Well, then what's to stop me from sinning? What's to stop me if my righteous acts, uh, you know, don't make me right with God? And if my unrighteousness, you know, God covers that with all of with all of his grace. Then what's to stop me from going out and just sinning it up? Right. Because there's like more grace than anything I can ever I can ever sin. And Paul answers that question absolutely not you don't understand what has happened to you when you placed your faith in jesus christ in fact his response is such an emphatic negative he's almost like in horror like god forbid that you should ever even ask that question and then he goes on and he describes three things that happen to believers when they place their faith in christ and he's basically saying when you understand these things when they really become a part of who you are you won't be asking that question oh should we just go on sinning now that grace might increase and uh and what paul wants these followers of romans to know and by extension all of us know is that when we really understand what happens to us when we place our faith in christ you know it will influence us it will impact how we live and the first thing that he wants us to know is that we are no longer in a bondage slavery relationship to sin we've been set free verses two to four he says by no means we died to sin how can we live in it any longer or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we too may live a new life okay Paul is saying that it's almost like as if we were slaves to this cruel and harsh taskmaster. We had this like slave master who kept us in bondage. We were in a dungeon and he took advantage of our weaknesses and he uh, and he abused us. And we had to do exactly what he said all the time, every time. But then one day a powerful and wonderful king arrived and he freed us from our slavery and our bondage and our dungeon. And the way that he did that is he killed us, so we died, and then he resurrected us again to a new life so we no longer live in that bondage-slavery relationship that we once had to sin. Paul is saying that's essentially what happened to you when you placed your faith in Christ. And then he alludes to our baptism, And he says that when you were baptized, now, baptism back then happened almost simultaneously at the point of conversion. Okay, none of this waiting period, oh, i got to decide if I want to do this or not. They didn't have infant baptism back then, so they didn't answer the question, oh, you know, do I need to be re-baptized or anything like that? You know, they didn't have to deal with all that. It's like, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Okay, well, under you go. (laughs) And Paul is saying that our baptism is an identification of, with what happened to Jesus. Just as Jesus died, we understand that the old person that we were, this, this, that we were in this relationship with sin, that person died with Jesus. And that just as Jesus rose from the dead in resurrection glory, we too, we anticipate and fully expect that we too will also rise again in the same way like Jesus Christ. And baptism is a picture of that. Okay? Now, even Jesus had to be baptized, right? You might ask yourself, well, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Because he 
certainly didn't sin at all, right? So why does he have to be baptism? But baptism isn't a washing away of sin, okay? Baptism is primarily an act of identification, an act of identification. Oh, so when Jesus was baptized, he is actually identifying with the nation of Israel. Israel as a nation, when uh, they were freed from bondage to slavery uh, in Egypt, they went through what? The Red Sea, right? Okay, you remember the film? If you're younger than me, it's DreamWorks, you know, Prince of Egypt. If you're older than me, it's it's uh, Char- Charlton Heston, right? Yeah. So, so they go through, and then after they go through the Red Sea, they are they go to Mount Sinai, and God declares them to be His people. You are My people, and I will be your God. And then they go out into the wilderness, and there they are tested for forty years. Jesus undergoes baptism. He goes through the waters. He comes up out of the water, and what happens? There's a voice. What does the voice say? You are my son. Okay? In in whom I am well pleased. He's declared to be the son of God, just like Israel is declared to be the people of God. And then he immediately goes out into the desert, and what? What happens? He's tested. He's tested by Satan in the the wilderness. Okay? So he's identifying with with Israel. He's saying, essentially, where Israel failed, I will succeed. And he... Paul is saying that your baptism is an identification not with Israel. Your baptism is an identification with Christ. When you go underneath the water, you are identifying the fact that you died with Christ. The old person that you were who was in slavery and bondage to sin is now done away with. And just as as Jesus was rose from the dead, you fully anticipate to have a new Resurrection. So now, for the first time, sin no longer has mastery over us. In verses 6 to 8, he says this. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer, no longer be slaves to sin. Okay? No longer be, might, might be slaves to sin. Okay? Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So sin may come after you, and it may try to intimidate you, and it may try to threaten you, and it may try to get you to obey its evil desires, but we no longer have to. We're in a new relationship with it. For the first time in our lives, when we place our faith in Jesus, we can now say no to sin. We have that choice because the power of God is now living inside of us and he gives us the power to say no to sin. And, and, and it's amazing. When you realize this, when you realize that you're in this new relationship, you have this new freedom from sin, it will change your life. Okay? Paul is like saying, go on sinning so that grace may increase. You don't understand. You don't understand. You died to sin. Why would you want to go on and live in it any longer why would you go want to go on obeying your old taskmaster and then the second thing that paul says is that we again that he alluded to we anticipate this glorious eternity with christ when we are resurrected verse verse five he says if we have been united with him like this in his death we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection verse eight now if we died with christ we believe that we will also live with him For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. 
And so Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, listen, just as Christ, as Jesus rose from the dead in resurrection glory, that's a picture of what is going to happen to each and every one of you who have your faith in Jesus Christ. This was a powerful and profound motivating principle for the early church. They really believed that their life here on earth was just a short, short little bit compared to the eternity that they were going to spend with Jesus forever in his kingdom. And that changed everything. It changed the way they lived. They lived with reckless abandon for Jesus Christ because they knew it doesn't matter. The worst thing you can do is kill me. And even then, I'm going to be resurrected into glory and I'm going to live forever with Jesus. So they just torture me, ridicule me, imprison me. It doesn't matter what you do to me. I know that ultimately I'm going to live forever in a resurrected state with Jesus Christ. And this changed how people lived. They went out and they lived with reckless abandon for Jesus. We don't live with that same kind of reckless abandon. And I, I think it's because we haven't taken the time and the hard work to really kind of meditate upon this truth. Do you realize you're going to be alive with Jesus in eternity a lot longer than you're going to be alive here on earth? I, I realize that more and more every day. Okay? It's good news for those of us who are feeling old. Okay? But... For any of us, whether we're old or young, it gives us motivation that we don't live for now. We live for eternity. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they pass you up for that promotion at work because you're, you're unwilling to go out and do whatever corporate America wants you to do, whatever ethical, you know, questionable things they want you to do. It doesn't matter if people make fun of you. It doesn't matter if the kids at school pick on you because you, you know, believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, your future is completely and eternally secure. And we live for that. And so Paul is saying, that if that is our future, if we're going to live forever with Jesus, why would we want to give ourselves to sin at this time? To see the logic, we're, this, this logic just changed how they lived. And then lastly, in verses 11 to 14, Paul points out this logical conclusion that we are now free to serve a new master. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of of righteousness again paul is pointing out the the logic here that although we are now we have now died to that relationship to sin sin still exists and it still can bark orders at us still can command us still can intimidate us but we no longer have to obey like he says here obey its evil desires we are now freed we've been resurrected to resurrected to serve a new master god our king and our master. And he says, now you want to present yourself not to sin 
And he talks about presenting the, the, the members of our bodies to things. We no longer want to use our, you know, our eyes to lust after a woman. We no longer want to use our hands in violence. We no longer want to do, use any of our, our, our members of our bodies for wickedness. But he says, now offer them to your new master, to God, in righteousness. Like what Sean Little was talking about up there, is that he no longer now abuses his body in drugs and alcohol, but he now has offered himself to Jesus, and he's following Jesus. And he says, Jesus first, I am second. And when we realize this, this begins to change everything, how we change, how we live our lives. Um, I had the privilege of uh, growing up under the teaching of Stuart Briscoe. He was my pastor when I was growing up. And Stuart is going to be with us in like three Sundays, February 25th. Mark your calendars, okay? We're going to be there. Uh, we're actually shutting down the Jackson site. We're inviting all of you to come up to Jackson because Stuart's now 87 years old. We don't want to schlep him all over the place, okay? just want to keep him in one place. And, and, but we want to, I want to invite you to come because he's going he's to open up and expand on Romans chapter 7 for us. But Stuart tells a story that I heard as a little boy, and it, it, I remember it to this day, okay? To this day. And he was talking about these verses and he talked about the fact that when he was a young teenager, he was, he was recruited into the British Royal Marines. He was drafted during the Korean War. And he had a strict sergeant major, regimental sergeant major, who barked orders and barked commands and had grown tough men quaking in their boots when he came on the scene. And they would have to do exactly what he said. And they would have to march you know, in formation and do, I don't know, whatever, I'm not a Royal Marine, but whatever they had to do, you know, he had to, they had to do it just right, or this guy really got on them and hammered on them, they, they had penalties and stuff like that, and they had to obey this guy to the T. And they were terrified of him. Very, very strict, strict guy. Well, one day, Stuart got his discharge papers, and he was discharged from the Marines, he was done. And he came out of the barracks with his discharge papers, came, was walking off the base, and coming towards him was this regimental sergeant major. And everything inside of Stuart immediately began going, hoop, hoop, you know, you know, trying to, and he, and he realized, I no longer have to obey this guy anymore. I'm in a new relationship with him. He has no authority over me whatsoever. And you know what Stuart did? He put his hands in his pockets. He started slouching a little bit, started whistling a merry tune, and just came, walked right on by him, waved and said, I am out of here. You know, I mean, because this guy no longer had any authority over it. And, 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 and Paul is saying, essentially, this is our new relationship to sin. Okay? We may choose to obey sin. Okay, but we don't have to any longer. We can offer ourselves to God and our bodies to him as instruments, not no longer of wickedness, but of righteousness. And when we do this, this changes everything. This was um, really hit home to me, and I heard a story of the team that we sent over to the Congo several years ago. Ryan, I think, was on that team. And they were visiting our friends in, uh, the Con- in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They were visiting World Relief staff there. And on one of the days, they were taking this tour, and they went up into the rainforest of eastern Congo, and they were going to visit a uh, village of Twa, 
people, people group of the Twa. They are diminutive people, shorter in stature, you know, um, and um, and because of that, they are they are the vulnerable people. They are the outcast, the pariah of society. They live very dark lives. And as they are walking up the hill, they could hear the Twa people singing praise songs. Okay, and the the staff member that they are with, as they are hiking up the the um, the, the hill, we can put a picture up there at the very end of my PowerPoint. As they're hiking up the hill, the, the staff member was interpreting the songs, and he is saying, this is what they're singing. They're saying, we used to be alcoholics, and we used to be drug addicts, and we used to beat our wives. But we have now been redeemed by Jesus Christ, and now we're no longer drug addicts, and now we're no longer alcoholics, and now we no longer beat our wives. Because we belong to Jesus, our King. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? What a great picture of what happens when we realize what happens to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. It changes how we live. It changes how we behave. It changes how we interact with the people around us. It changes everything. And our hope, our hope and our prayer for all of us, as we go through these three chapters together in the book of Romans, is that God will once again use these words to change our lives as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, first and foremost, I want to pray for everyone here. I pray that they would go home and that they would read and reread and study just these, these 14 verses in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go and take and do everything that I wasn't able to do here on this Sunday morning to speak truth into all of my friends' lives here that the truths of your word would go down deep, that they would find good soil, responsive soil. And all of us here would realize we are no longer slaves to sin. We are going to be resurrected into a glorious eternity with Jesus Christ to live forever with him. And we now can offer ourselves to him as our new master, our good and kind and gracious master. Lord, I pray that you would use these truths to change history once again. Begin with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.